Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. For the last several weeks, our podcasts have been focused on the 2020 election. That series continues today, but we're looking at an office that's at a much more local scale, South Carolina sheriffs. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Gavin McIntyre. In addition to voting for president and representatives in Congress and the State House, South Carolinians voted on school board members, county council, and many other positions that affect their day-to-day lives. We wanted to look at sheriffs in particular because a couple of things stood out. First, Charleston County elected the state's first-ever female sheriff, unseating an incumbent who has held the office for about three decades. Sheriff's races also told a statewide story on Election Day. Residents in more than a quarter of the state's counties voted out incumbents. We'll be talking about that later in today's episode, but first we are speaking with Kristen Graziano, who won election for Charleston County Sheriff over longtime incumbent Al Cannon. Before we jump into that interview, I wanted to first thank everyone who had subscribed to this podcast newsletter and subscribed to this show on your podcast apps. We have a special giveaway for listeners, and if you haven't signed up and subscribed yet, now is the time. You could win a new pair of AirPods to listen to this show. So hit that subscribe button and check out our show notes for a link to sign up in the newsletter. Now let's go to that interview with Kristen Graziano, who, like I said, was just elected Charleston County's next sheriff and South Carolina's first female sheriff. All right. Uh, So first, thanks so much for for talking with us today. Uh, We knew we wanted to talk about this race and other sheriff's races in South Carolina, but we're really hoping to talk with you directly. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. You've been with the sheriff's office here for 18 years. Why did you run and why now? Why this year? Yeah, you know, it's not a secret that I've been asked that probably a thousand times and I never really have the same answer. I could just tell you it's just been a series of events throughout not just my career, but uh, throughout Charleston that have led me to this place. And essentially it was the need for, uh, you know, reform that 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 led, led me to this place. We reported back in February when you had decided uh, to run that, that Sheriff Alcannon put you on uh, paid leave after learning that you were running for the office. Thinking back on that, what do you think of that decision? And also, did that influence in any way your approach to the campaign or your thoughts about the campaign? <laughs> this was not a decision that I that I just made, I woke up one day and said I was going to do. This was a decision that uh, took a lot of uh, effort. It took time. It, it was in the making for years. Uh, it's not something that um, I, I, I did in a rash way. <clears throat> I consulted with a lot of people, and uh, we weighed our options. And that possibility of not remaining in my my job was one of those we said worst case scenarios. We always prepared for the worst case scenario, and it happened. So it wasn't a shock. Uh, to me, as much as it was a kind of fuel for the campaign, I never announced um, that I was running. It was it was heard through the grapevine um, that 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 was a possibility, and um, and that and that happened to get back to the sheriff. So I never really had a chance to you know, embrace that. <laughs> it, it just happened, but but we knew it was happening, and and um, and I'll clarify that I was not on paid leave. I was on unpaid leave. The leave that I had, I had to pay myself. So I, I, I knew at that point 
financially for my family and everything, we would be okay. But I, uh, I, you know, that was part of the scenario. And what was uh, campaigning like in uh, Charleston County? What were you hearing from residents and, you know, members of the community about what they wanted to see in a new sheriff? I think, uh, I think well, you know, what was campaigning like? I've never campaigned before, so I didn't know uh, what campaigning was supposed to be like. So having started this uh, campaign and ended ending this campaign through COVID, well, we had to be creative. And we had to reach people in ways that, um, uh, you know, most people um, would not have thought to do this. So, and I would say that our, our campaign was probably cutting edge in that respect because we started out strong digitally and, and we never let go of that uh, digital outreach. So to be able to reach these people first uh, and, and engage them, we had to do it in a safe manner. Earlier, you mentioned George Floyd and of course, um, I know that throughout the the campaign, um, you did as well mention George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, the protests that that were here in Charleston, um, but also of course across the the country and the world. And I'm I'm curious, how did that, you know, in the middle of the campaign, change things for for you and and your priorities, and and how did it change maybe the response from the community to your campaign? So Emily, the message I had going into this campaign was well before George Floyd, it never changed. What it did in, in the wake of George Floyd's death and in May 29th is it got louder. You know, people started listening to not the mess, not just the message that I had of, of how we needed to, you know, move forward in law enforcement and how we needed to treat people. But the message got louder because other people were saying the same thing. My voice has never been that loud. I'm pretty low key. Uh, you know, I'm pretty much behind. I love doing the busy work. That's that's where I uh, really thrive. And um, but, but when these when that happened on May 29th, and it actually happened before May 29th, protests didn't start with George Floyd. It started before that. But but really, that's when it got loud, and that's what everybody started saying the same thing. And then people started listening, um, you know, to what I was saying. And, and then together, uh, we agreed that we needed to listen to one another. And I think that's part of our probably downfall in law enforcement is, you know, it's, it's a very difficult position to be in because you don't, you're expected to get it right every time. You have to get it right because people's lives depend on it. And when you don't get it right, um, it's, it's very difficult to say, hey, I did, you know, I, I didn't get it right and you need to fix this. So we need to take responsibility for that. Not my officers, our, our deputy sheriffs in Charleston County didn't do this. You know, they didn't cause this, but they represent the uniform that did and the people in those uniforms that did. And that's what people see. It's not a personal issue. And I had, I've really had to really readjust my thinking that, you know, just over the years that these protests are not a direct assault on us. They're, they're an assault on a system that has oppressed so many people. And we have to use that as, as our fuel for change. And, and I think a lot of people understand it. Sure, there are skeptics in law enforcement that are just hard chargers and say, no, that's not, that's not the case, but we have to do it. Uh, because I've said it before, until we have tangible change, there will not be peace. I know that to be true to this day. In comments that you made the day after uh, the election, you said the department should own our mistakes and move forward as an agency. 
What are some of those mistakes, and how can the department move forward? You know, I've been very open about about this, and, and part of that started with with uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I think our, you know, my opponent uh, missed an opportunity to embrace um, what people were saying, and and uh, much to his detriment, I believe, in, in this in this particular race. But but it's not the first time. So we. The, you know, when we're not listening and engaging with the community, we're, we're refusing to move forward. And so, I would, I would, um, I would just say that that I think was was something that I was in tune with. I have my pulse on the finger of the community. I've never left it. I'm not going to leave it. Um, and I think that's something that they wanted. They want to be at the table, making decisions that affect the lives of of their their communities and that's what we're doing that's what we're going to continue to do and, and of course you've, you've spoken about being more transparent with the community getting the community more um in engaged in improving those relationships how does that happen you know what what does that look like uh when you come into office what are, what are those steps that go towards specifically you know building those relationships and improving relationships Emily, it doesn't start January 5th. It's already started. Uh, we uh, have made every effort to, to not just honor what we said we were going to do, but to reach out to the people that we think can help. So I think tomorrow we'll announce that we will have uh, four community members uh, involved in the transition, just as eyes and ears for the community, to show how we, the obstacles we come across, how we transition. Look, we've never done this before in Charleston County. We, we've never transitioned the office of sheriff in Charleston County. Uh, this is this is a first for all of us. So uh, to say that I can do it and I know how to do it and I'm going to do it, we're going to do it right. I can't I can't tell you that. Uh, but, but I know that uh, input from the community is important. And, you know, the people that we've assembled are not necessarily friendly to police officers. It You know, it's it, but I think it's important to have that perspective of people that are critical of us because uh, ultimately, their lives are being affected by our decisions, too. So uh, we've already started that. We are going to continue it uh, throughout the transition and then beyond. I guess, you know, having having four members of the community who are critical of the department, why is that essential to help y'all do your jobs better or, you know, make decisions that will improve the community? It's tra- it's uh, it's transparency. Um, you know, we, we have, and, and I've said this throughout, we have to be transparent uh, with our community. So that that is a way for them to engage in our process, uh, whether we get it right or not, we're, we're going to get it right. But, you know, there'll be some growing pains, I'm sure, uh, because we don't, we, we've never done it. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a matter of the eyes and ears from the community assessing us, watching us, uh, communicating with us, and then filtering that communication out to their communities. Um, and it's it's an effort to be transparent. You plan to conduct racial bias and financial audits of the department. Can you speak a little bit to what you expect to find? Um, so obviously doing those, uh, you see, I, I'm, I'm thinking some issues on, on both of those fronts. So um, when do you expect to start those? And and like I said, also, what, what might you expect to find? Well, you know, Fortunately, we have a, a great county government and, and leadership in county government that has 
uh, has reached out and it is honoring uh, the ability for us to conduct financial audits. So that's already a uh, beginning. What I've asked for is an, an independent person to oversee that who has not been selected yet, but I want somebody that is uh, skilled in, in police budgets. Uh, because I think there, there's this, uh, because our budget's so big, I'm a, I'm a numbers cruncher, I'm a, I'm a budget person, uh, but th this is an enormous uh, budget. And I think we need that oversight. We need to see how we are spending our money in the agency and where we can better serve our community. That is gonna continue. That, that, so that, that has begun. Um, the racial bias audit, I had requested funding for that. And I don't foresee any issues with that. There are some, some discretionary funds that I will have access to. I've just asked for it to start now so that when we get in there in January, we're able to look at that data and, and to determine where we need to go, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. So what do I expect? I don't know what to expect. I don't think any of us know what to expect. Uh, you know, we, we do know from the data we have uh, that, that we have um, been policing our communities in a, in a not fair, fair capacity. And when I, when I say that, uh, I'll specifically talk about minor offenses um, like uh, simple possession of marijuana or minor offenses like uh, driving offenses that predominantly and disproportionately affect our black community. And I, 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 that data already exists. So we, we have to move forward in, in figuring out how we're going to correct that to make it fair and equitable for all people. Uh, because we're not going to move forward if we don't fix that. Uh, but there's little things like that that we know the data already exists. Now we have to work on our policies and procedures and our training is critical. Uh, you know, at the same time, if you're going to change policies and procedures, if the law eventually is going to change to support these efforts, which I believe it will, then we have to have training in place to make sure that the people that are enforcing these laws uh, know what their responsibilities are and, and are protected uh, by those policies. Right. And like you said, this is a new thing for Charleston County to, to see this kind of transition. Um, what do you think the community should know about that uh just just that this is is a new thing and of course you're, you're laying out all of your all of your intentions and plans but i'm sure there will be a learning curve what should the community know as as you're going through this transition well i mean there are there are so many skeptics you know i'm sure i have i'm sure my staff has sheltered me from from many of them but but the, but i need i need to know you know what their concerns are uh, what they need to know is the faces, the people that they're criticizing are still doing the job. <laughs> they're still in place. They're still doing what they've always done and that's serving their community. None of that has changed. And none of that uh, I don't anticipate is going to change. You know, there are people that will not want to be a part of this and that's fine. And it, it's still hard feelings, but if you didn't, if you don't embrace the change and, and you can't, uh, you can't handle it, I will assist you going wherever you need to go. I, I promise you that. But uh, that is their decision. That's not my decision. But there are some that, you know, I think the community should be excited. Yes, apprehensive and skeptical and all those things because it is an important, it is an important time for us uh, 
especially for progress in our in our profession. But but that's okay, we're we're okay with that. We've been people been critical of of us and in our profession all our lives. We expect that. But give us a give us a shot. You know, give us a shot to see what it's going to do. Don't don't just dismiss us. Don't underestimate us. Last week, we uh, talked about how Republicans swept many races on Election Day in South Carolina. Yours was not one. You ran as a Democrat, and some people had to cross party lines for you to be successful in this election. Why do you think that happened, and what did you do in your campaign to kind of reach across those lines and get your message across? Well, I will say that I don't think this election and some other elections that are local should be partisan at all. I think, uh, unfortunately, that's the way it's set up in, in South Carolina, and that's that's what we have to do. You know, we have to honor that. But um, I think part of that is, you know, what I said earlier, it's, it's engaging people. A lot of my support was Republican support because people know me. I've been in the community. They understand where where I stand. I'm not... I'm not this person that's that's gonna just like uh, hug it out, but we're also not gonna slug it out, and we're we're going we're we're going to treat people fairly with dignity and respect. And my number one priority is to keep this community safe, and that's the same priority that we've all had. Uh, you know, re- whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that's the priority that we all have. Now, how we enge- how we do that, m- maybe maybe we may differ on how we do that. Uh, I, I tend to engage people. I tend to involve people in the process. Uh, maybe that was not the case with, with my opponent. I don't know. Um, but that is the way I do it. And, and apparently it has worked <laughs> thus far. And, and it worked for the election. And, but, but I'll say I have 48% of the people that didn't vote for me. So I have work to do. Um, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, this this time and uh, like you said I know this is I'm sure this is a a busy and, and hectic time thank you Emily thank you Gavin I- one of the endorsements for Kristen Graziano came from the independent Black Lives Matter chapter of Charleston we talked with Marcus McDonald, who leads that group, about why. What are some of the things that you think you and other activists will be pushing for when this transition does happen? So you supported Kristen Graziano as a candidate, but obviously you'll still be uh, advocating and, and, and fighting for things related to the criminal justice system here locally, what are some of those things that you'll be looking for, pushing for, you know, and asking about when this transition happens? Well, one of the big things that we're going to be focusing on, and we have some experience at this point working on, um, is she's saying she wants to do several independent racial bias audits. We think that's a huge first step. Also, the relationship we have with ICE, she says she, she wants to dismantle that and really want to see you know, how that looks like and, you know, what extent she's planning on doing that because we think those are both great ideas. We really want to, like, dig in really deep on this independent racial bias audit to ensure that it's both independent and it's done thoroughly. So uh, we're really excited to see, like, what comes out of the racial bias audit. She's saying she wants to go through the backlogs of arrests and uh, make recommendations in regards to that, and I think that's a great idea, too, just kind of see where we where we are right now as far as, like, disparities and then you know, make actions 
accordingly. Once we get all that information available, like really pushing her to like make you know feasible recommendations and feasible things that can you know make changes. So we're kind of like I said, like we're waiting on that time where when she's sworn in and gets to work, then we really just want to like like be be there every step of the way as far as racial bias audit. She's playing on like a community engagement. Um, I'm just staying engaged those ways and making sure she um, follows up on her promises. I'm curious just to hear overall more about the response to putting together your your voting guide. What kind of enthusiasm, energy did you see from from people responding to that? So not just about this this sheriff's race, but other races that you that you looked at and and tried to inform people about. We were like, we really want to like get the word out because like young voters, especially like young black voters in particular, is something like the least likely to turn out. So we like really directed it towards them. We got some good feedback. There was some some mixed feedback with the sheriff's race because I feel like some people thought that we were endorsing her and making like, you know, putting her up on the pedestal. But we were just saying, hey, like, we would much, 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 much rather have Chris and Graziano there. So there's some mixed feedback about the sheriff's one. But I mean, at the end of the day, we knew we did what we had to do. Just, you know, even though we have to fight really hard against them, it does a disservice if we don't um, at least start the conversation. That's all we did in the interview as well. It's like we want to, you know, make ourselves familiar and at least start that conversation. So that was just something that's huge for us. So we really didn't take that negative feedback too bad when we knew it was going to happen. But, you know, we kind of just had to do what we had to do. Leading up to the election, Charleston Black Lives Matter also interviewed Kristen Graziano about the issues that they thought were key to this race. You can find that video on their Instagram feed, which is at chs underscore blm last week really ushered in a wave of new sheriffs in south carolina more than a quarter of the state's counties rejected their incumbents to talk more about that we called up reporter joseph craney who followed that story and co-wrote a project last year about abuses of power among South Carolina sheriffs. So like we said at the top of this episode, this is a statewide story as well. Charleston County was not the only county in South Carolina that will be swearing in a new sheriff come January. Uh, So just to start out, how many new sheriffs were elected in South Carolina last week? South Carolina will have its largest turnover among its sheriffs likely in the state's history. There were 14 sheriffs who, including Charleston Sheriff, who come January will be sworn in um, either as new sheriffs or permanent replacements for sheriffs that left office or were removed from office for um, allegations or convictions of abuse of office. Was that a surprise at all? Or was this something that we expected to see? It is a surprise for people who monitor election results among sheriffs. They are among the most deeply entrenched elected officials in any county, anywhere. People who observe sheriff's races say it's pretty rare for an incumbent to even get a challenger in a general election, let alone be defeated by one. And there's a common saying that sheriffs don't leave office unless they are toppled by some kind of scandal and removed from office. And that's certainly been true in South Carolina. Right. And let's speak a little bit more to that. How much of that have we seen in in South Carolina recently? And 
We're also talking after a long project that you co-wrote called Above the Law, and that looked into really the actions of sheriffs across the state. What are some of those specifics, maybe some of those specific examples of counties where, where sheriffs have either been on leave or removed from office because of actions that they took while holding the position? There's almost no corner of South Carolina that has not seen some serious allegations or convictions involving uh, abuse of office of the local sheriff. Our story above the law highlighted the fact that about a quarter of South Carolina's counties had seen their sheriffs formally accused or indicted of illegal behavior. And that was everything from sheriffs who uh, were accepting bribes, sheriffs who were accepting kickbacks on county contracts, sheriffs who were abusing their positions as the administrators of the local jails. We thought it was really important to highlight a story that in South Carolina, almost it almost felt like it was, it was hiding in, in plain sight. This serious string of misconduct and allegations of corruption against some of our most powerful elected law enforcement officials. So we set out to highlight that and also expose uh, new allegations or new conduct that the public did not know about. Why sheriffs? You know, what? what is it about that position that has kind of created that environment where these wrongdoings can take place at such a large scale? While we were reporting this story, someone said to me that sheriffs are the closest thing that America has to kings. And if you don't live in a rural area, it, it can be difficult to fully understand just how much power sheriffs have. They are the the most often the most visible law enforcement official. They carry authority even over incorporated local police departments. They're often extremely popular, and you know when they stand for messages like law and order, um, that's really appealing to constituents, particularly in rural or conservative areas. But what's also happened in recent years is is the expansion of their power, particularly post 9/11. Local law enforcement agencies have seen a flood of additional federal resources where we, we're in a situation now where, where local sheriff's departments sit atop these enormous pots of public money. And the, the person in charge of all of that with very little uh, scrutiny or accountability is the local sheriff. So our story above the law was particularly interested in looking at the ways South Carolina sheriffs in recent years have been spending public money. Let's look more specifically at a couple of the races from from last week and a couple of those counties where that sheriff leadership is changing. Chester County, what happened in the election there? Chester has to be the most striking example. Our story above the law, key uh, sheriff we featured in that story was was Chester County Sheriff Alex Underwood. He is an ele- he was an elected Democrat in a largely low-income area between Columbia and Charlotte. He's an extremely powerful person in that area. And our story revealed that Alex Underwood had been spending public money for conference trips around the country in which he was charging taxpayers for first-class flights upgrades to his room. And we also revealed that he had enlisted his deputies to help improve a barn 
at Mr. Underwood's personal property, which he effectively converted into a man cave. In light of our reporting, state and federal prosecutors indicted Underwood, outlining uh, much of which we detailed in our story. He has pled not guilty to those charges. He is awaiting trial. And as he awaits trial this year, he entered uh, his reelection race. And last week on election day, Chester County voters went to the polls and selected a permanent replacement for Alex. He was defeated by uh, Max Dorsey, a Republican who has been serving as the interim sheriff in Chester while Underwood awaits trial. What about another example, uh, Colleton County, a little bit closer here to, to Charleston? The former sheriff, Andy Strickland, was another uh, sheriff who we featured in our reporting. We reported that he uh, took an expensive trip to Myrtle Beach, charged taxpayers for that trip. And then when a county official questioned him about the expenses, the sheriff told the official that he was being, quote, nosy as hell about it. Mr. Strickland was later indicted. He was also accused of domestic violence. And as of last month, he pleaded guilty to a range of charges that included um, beating his girlfriend, ordering deputies to perform work on his property, and an additional charge where prosecutors described um, an inappropriate relationship with one of his subordinates. And as of last week, voters also took to the polls to select, in light of Strickland's conviction, to select a permanent replacement for him in Colleton County. I think the question for a lot of people who may be looking for reform in this office, who who maybe are hearing these charges and allegations against sheriffs or now former sheriffs or soon to be former sheriffs, and will probably be wondering what what change will happen. Sure, getting new new people into these offices. Are any of those newly elected sheriffs sharing in any information about specifics in terms of how they want to? change their departments or, or initiate some kind of reform. They are. And it should be noted that among the 14 sheriffs elected as permanent new sheriffs on election day, five of them came from counties where the sheriffs had recently been indicted or removed. So in all five of those races, um, the new sheriffs were running on platforms of accountability and transparency and restoring the public trust after this local these local scandals. I've, I spoke to several of those newly elected sheriffs, and each of them are already vowing permanent changes. Uh, one sheriff mentioned volunteering his department for statewide accreditation, which would subject the department's practices, including spending practices, to the scrutiny of outside policing experts. Um, another sheriff asked specifically about spending practices, said he would install a two-check spending system where any expense in the county department would have to be approved by a second person. And the sheriff no longer has the liberty to spend public money whenever he wants, however he wants. So I think on a micro level, at least in those counties where the sheriffs were recently removed, uh, their replacements are adding, are vowing changes. On a larger level, we've known about sheriff scandals in South Carolina for a long time, and the legislature has done um, almost nothing to address it. And I think anyone who, who has observed those efforts acknowledges the challenge in convincing uh, lawmakers to formally install some safeguards for taxpayers to protect 
them from these kinds of abuses. Sheriffs are popular political figures, often very close with lawmakers. In a red state, adding any kind of reform to law enforcement is going to be a potentially contentious issue in Colombia. Thanks so much for talking with us today and then also for all of that reporting. Thank you, Emily. And thank you to everyone who's been following along with our election uh, series covering the individual races and election day. Uh, You can go back and find previous episodes on postandcourier.com. Thank you. And don't forget, you can sign up for our newsletter and a chance to win our giveaway. If you've already signed up, you'll be eligible to win, too. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for this show, you can find us on Twitter at UnderstandSC. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.